Today's sponsor is Headspace. You slept every night of your life, so you should be pretty good at it by now, right? Unfortunately, many of us don't get the quality sleep that we need and could use a little bit of help, and that's where Headspace has got you covered. It's your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. And while they have meditations devoted to helping you reduce stress and increase your overall sense of well-being, they have an entire library of sleep stories, sleep music, and other sleep sounds that can help you get the quality sleep you desperately need. And for busy lifestyles, they have what's called wind downs. It's meditations and breathing exercises that are as short as three minutes so they can fit into anybody's schedule. I personally use Headspace myself. I've tried out some of the sleep stuff. It actually works. Like to me, it actually makes a difference. So Headspace, it's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews. That's a lot. And over 60 million downloads. Try it today for free and start sleeping soundly. So right now, our listeners get 30% off Headspace's entire library of meditations. Just go to headspace.com slash sleep pod for 30% off your subscription, but only until May 12th. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash sleep pod today. This is the Smart Passive Income Podcast with Pat Flynn, session number 255. Deep, 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 deep. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, you can see him airboxing to fire himself up before speaking in public, Pat Flynn. Hey, hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to uh, March 1st, for those of you who are listening to this when this comes out. Thank you so much for listening in. This is really cool because uh, a lot of great things happening right now. Uh, for one, I actually just released, or re-released, if you wanna think about it that way, my brand new course, Smart From Scratch, which you can find at smartfromscratch.com. And what's really cool is actually I tested this course back in October of 2016, and now we've refined it, uh, we've made it even better, we've uh, collected a lot of feedback, and now it's open to the public once again at smartfromscratch.com. Uh, the doors will close again at some point, but that's gonna be opening and closing throughout the year. So if you don't get it now, that's cool, but if you wanna get in early now, that's cool too. Uh, but you can check it out, smartfromscratch.com. So that's really exciting. Uh, but more than that right now, I'm really excited to introduce this next guest to you because this person is somebody who I highly respect right now. I've been reading his books, uh, and to get him on the show is just such an honor. It was actually quite hard to get him on the show uh, because he's so busy with other things, and he's very, very diligent with where he spends his time. Uh, now, speaking of time, March of this year is sort of themed uh, on SPI as the productivity month, and by that, it is going to be more of a research month on how we can be the most productive people possible. Why is this important? How do we get into those modes when we are doing just incredible work and amazing output from the input that we put into the time that we spend doing things? And and so on, on the podcast this month, you're gonna hear from a number of people who have productivity as sort of their expertise. And it starts today with Cal Newport, the author of the recent book, Deep Work. And oh man, this was a great interview. Very, very, very actionable advice uh, and really interesting angles on why Cal does certain things uh, and just kind of his journey about writing books and how he sort of documented his life and what he's learned throughout these books. It was also really interesting too. Uh, so I look forward to sharing this with you and also the rest of the amazing content we have for you this month too. So uh, why don't you sit back, relax, and listen up. This is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. Here we go. What's up, everybody? I'm so happy and honored to welcome Cal Newport 
to the SPI podcast today. Cal, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, sure, Pat. You know, thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you know this, uh, Cal, but your book and uh, amongst a few others have been sort of passed around as sort of the books to read in the entrepreneur space. For a while, it was The One Thing, and then it was Essentialism, and, and lately it's been deep work. We've been featuring it in uh, book clubs. It was actually the book of the month for uh, my audience, for my book club in November of 2016. And so it's just, again, such an honor to have you here because I think all of us can relate to living in this busy, distracted world and trying to get the things that we want done, but just having a really hard time doing it. So there was no better person that I could think of to come on and help us through, uh, through these struggles than yourself. Well, sure. Well, I, you know, I appreciate that, Pat. And I don't even think I can really take much credit. I think the timing was just right. And I was lucky that I was talking about something at a time that people were really ready to hear it. Absolutely. Well, you are also very humble, obviously, but uh, thank you for that. And, you know, I'm curious, going back into your history, when, at what point in your life did you uh, really start to get serious about, you know, actually being productive? I think for a lot of us, it's uh, certain moments in our lives or events that might happen for you. Was there a specific moment when you just started to get really serious about uh, your input versus output? Yeah, very specific, actually. It would be the fall of my sophomore year at college. And this is actually what started me on my career as being a writer as well, wanting to write a book about my experience getting more productive in college. Basically, what happened is before college, I had been an entrepreneur in the first dot-com boom. So this was the Netscape, Webvan, 1990s, that original dot-com boom. Mm -hmm. I, I had a company. And so I was used to business books. Hey, you want to do marketing better? Let's get a book about how to do marketing, right? You need to have more sales. Let's get a book about sales. So I get to college. Uh, I'm there. I'm like doing okay, but I don't really know what I'm how to do it, right? I'm staying up late. I'm doing a typical college thing. So mm -hmm. saying used to this from the entrepreneur world, it's like, well, let me go get a book. Um, let me go figure out a book about how to be productive at college. I'm paying these student loans. Let's figure it out. And there was nothing there. And so I, I set out on this this uh, process of self experimentation. I, I took one semester and said, I'm going to crack this. And I ran experiment after experiment on how I took notes on how I studied, on how I read, on how I, how I scheduled my time. And the result of it was I went from like an AB student to getting a 4.0 in every semester, starting in that, that sophomore uh, fall all the way to when I graduated. Mm -hmm. And that was when I had this epiphany moment. They're like, oh my God, how you do work, your organizational habits, these type of systems can have a huge impact on your success. So I was sort of a, a convert from that point forward. I see. And you actually wrote a book called How to Become a Straight-A Student, which was published in 2006, which I think is really interesting. Now, and that's correct me if I'm wrong, but that's not necessarily all about how to get straight A's, but it's essentially um, how, how to actually win in college. Can you explain a little bit more about the sort of origin of, of that book specifically? Well, I wanted to share my experience with other people because I couldn't find that book. That's what drove me to actually do these experiments myself. So essentially what I did is I said, I don't want to just write about my own habits. Let me go interview 50 straight A students. I mean, to me, it seemed like a simple idea, but it was new in the publishing industry at the time. I said, I'll just go find 50 students who do really well in school like I did and who don't seem like they're just grinding it out. Mm -hmm. you know, they don't seem exhausted, the all-nighter type approach. I just interviewed them and I distilled the common ideas from how they managed their time, how they took notes, how they studied, how they, how they wrote papers. I put it into a book. It seems obvious, but there was no book like that out there at the time. Everything on the college bookshelf back in the, the mid-2000s and, and late 1990s was very much trying to be fun and funny and cool mm -hmm. and not too serious. You didn't want to scare off the student reader. The publishing industry thought if you were, if you were being too serious. So I just kind of thumbed my nose at that and just called the book 
how to be a straight A student. <laughs> it's sort of like the opposite of what people were doing <laughs> in the industry. But I'll tell you, that book sells as well today, a decade later, as it did when it first came out. <laughs> it's, oh, wow. it's a simple idea, but there's a hungry audience for it. Like, hey, I'm in school. I have loans. How do I study? Like, how do, how do I get return on this investment? And it turns out it's not so hard. What's a really quick piece of advice you could give related to that? We, I actually have a lot of high school students who listen to the show who are probably chomping at the bit now. Like, well, just give us one thing that we can use to help us. What, what would that be? When it comes to studying, active recall is the whole ballgame. Uh, active recall is where you try to reproduce the information you need out loud without looking at your notes as if you were lecturing a classroom. If you can do that, you know the material. Reading it, doing passive recall, reading your notes, reading a highlighted textbook, wasted time. You, you might as well just play a video game. If you study people who get really high grades at the college level, active recall, active recall is the whole thing. It's very time effective. It's cognitively demanding, but it's very time effective and it's it's incredibly useful. You, you do active recall on your material, you'll know it. It won't take too long to learn it. Almost anything else is not worth doing. I love that. You had mentioned almost as if you were teaching it. And that's actually something that I did in college to do very well. I actually got groups together in all the different classes I was in. And we, we would each try to teach each other the stuff. And instead of just reading it out loud, like you said, we're actually actively recalling it. And with this pressure of actually people learning from us at the same time combined, it, it worked out really well for me too. So that's a fantastic piece of advice. Thank you for that, Cal. And then later on in life, you published a book that I know a lot of people have heard of before, and that is so good they can't ignore you. Before we get into deep work, I'd love to know um, more about that book, So Good They Can't Ignore You. What does that, what does that mean exactly, and who is this for? Yeah, so I wrote that book right around the time I was transitioning out of grad school and into the world of work. Mm -hmm. And I felt if there was any time in my life I need to understand an answer to the question, how do people end up loving what they do for a living, that was the most important time. Because I was trying to make this decision, am I going to go into academia? It was possible that I was going to do sort of the first and last job interviews of my life. So I figured I'm going to get the most leverage from having an answer to that question at this one point in my life. Now, because I'd written some books before, I had the luxury of not just thinking about it myself, but actually writing a book on the topic. I figured that would kind of help me get more access to people if I was not just trying to answer that question for myself. So that's all that book was about. If you study people who love what they do, and if you look at the scientific research on workplace satisfaction, what works, what's important? And basically the headline that sort of got me in some trouble is that the most common piece of advice out there, which is, follow your passion, right. uh, can actually be damaging advice. It can actually reduce the probability that you're going to end up passionate about your work. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And so now we're kind of growing up in terms of, you know, who, who this kind of content is for. So for those who are, I guess, exiting college at this point in time, listening to this, what's one piece of advice you could give to them so that they can give themselves the best chance to actually succeed in, in the world out there? Well, if you study people who end up passionate about their work, what you find is maybe eight out of 10 cases, they don't start with a pre-existing passion, which they identify and then use that as the foundation of their work decisions. Instead, passion is sort of the side effect that comes later by them instead choosing something that seems interesting and then working hard to get really good at it. So that's sort of my best advice is that if you want to maximize the chance that you're going to end up passionate, don't obsess too much about finding the perfect job. Uh, there's many different jobs or pursuits that can lead you to passion. The key is once you've chosen something that has that possibility, put your head down, get as good as possible, as quickly as possible, satisfaction, motivation, and then passion almost always build on a foundation of skill. How do you balance that for somebody who might have a ton of interests and they just can't 
pick one and go with it. Because obviously, in order to get great at something, you have to stick with something and commit to it. But I know a lot of people, and this was me back in the day, I would go from project A, get excited about it, and then the honeymoon period ends, and then I get bored, and I move to project B, and it's just, it's all completely different because I want to try something new. How do you even start to be good at something if you don't even give yourself a chance to uh, commit? Well, I think it's important to lower the threshold. So the story we've been often told in our culture is that there's one job that you're meant to do. And if you get it right, you're going to love it. And if you get it wrong, you're going to be screwed. Mm. And I think this causes a lot of that anxiety because you're like, well, I like all of these things. And what if I chose the wrong one? And, you know, I'm not I've been doing this for six months. I'm not really loving it. Did I make the wrong choice? Is this not my one true passion? My advice is to lower that threshold. The reality is it's not that every job could be a source of passion to you, but you already know the jobs that you're not going to like, right? That's not that hard for people to filter out things they know they're going to hate. So once you've narrowed down the list to maybe many things that seem like they're interesting to you and that seem like they would have interesting opportunities if you did them really well, you might as well throw a dart or flip a coin. It does not really matter. The the satisfaction that's going to come in your life really depends on what you do once you make the choice, not on the choice itself. So I just lower that threshold. Don't sweat the choice so much, but put a lot more attention on what you do once you make the choice. Love that. Thank you for that, Kyle. That, that's huge advice for people out there. I know they're going to uh, really, really be able to move forward with that. Now, let's get into deep work. I'm curious, what was this just, oh, I need to write another book. What? Let me figure out what topic to write about. Or what, what was the origin story behind this, your latest book? Basically, my books are bullet points on my timeline, right? So so we started with me in college and early grad school writing books about how to be a successful student. Mm -hmm. Then I went on to the job market, so wrote a book about how do you decide what to do with your life and build passion, and became a professor. And then my next question was, how do I do this complex knowledge work job really well? That was the next thing relevant in my life. How do I succeed, in my case, at being a professor? Well, as I was looking into that, it became clear that the answer was deep work. And not only was it clear for my particular job, which was, you know, academia, but the more I looked into it, the more it became clear that it was pretty universally relevant if you wanted to succeed in your career. So I said, as I usually do, when I come across something like this in my own life, I think it's time to write a book. So basically everything I write is going to line up pretty closely with some sort of important decision or goal or strategy in my life at the time. I love that. Can you give us any insight on what the next part might be? Who knows? We'll, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. It's following my, my trends. I have two young boys now. So who knows? Maybe Cal Newport will be writing parenting books or how to survive on a small amount of sleep books. We'll see. Oh, wow. Well, I uh, am a parent as well of two kids. And so I think there's a big demand for that. So we'll see. But for now, let's focus on deep work. What is deep work exactly in your opinion? So deep work was a term I defined to describe a very specific activity, which is when you're focusing without distraction for a long period of time on a cognitively demanding task. So that activity is what I give the shorthand name deep work to. Mm-hmm. And this can even be done with two kids. I mean, I, I, it's almost impossible. It seems like in my household, I have to work either early in the morning before they wake up or after uh, they go to bed in order to find time. How can one find uh, time to do this? I'm sure this is one of the most common questions. Well, more of the way I think about it is take the time that you're already set aside for doing work whether it be at an office or when you have childcare or if you don't early in the morning, late night, whenever you're doing work. And my argument is pushing towards this deep work activity as opposed to the other types of work activities you can do is disproportionately valuable at the same time that is being essentially disproportionately ignored by our work cultures. And I think this is a, an oversight 
that if we correct, can lead a lot more people to be a lot more successful professionally and actually a lot more happy just in the satisfaction they get out of their professional life. What do you mean by it's kind of overlooked in the professional world? Well, there's two trends going on. They're counteracting each other. So deep work, I argue, is becoming more valuable right now. As the knowledge economy gets more complex and more competitive, the better you are at deep work and the more you prioritize it, the better you'll do. And yet the other trend happening right now in our culture is that people are getting worse at it. Mm. People are uh, more prone to distraction than before. People's schedules are more fragmented before. And a lot of the big trends in the workplace are actually actively hostile to deep work. So the rise, for example, of open offices or uh, constant connection email culture or always on to do deep work. So you have these two arrows pointing in opposite directions, something becoming more valuable at the same time that's becoming more rare. When I see that, I see opportunity. That if you're, for example, an entrepreneur or a freelancer or someone who can really control your own life, you have this huge opportunity to be one of the few to cultivate and prioritize the skill. I think it's going to be a huge competitive advantage. So it's not necessarily about adding more time to do something and just make that time deep work. It's maybe removing time that you're already spending on sort of surface level work and putting that into deep work. Is that the right way to think about it? Right. You, if you have X number of hours of work to do each week, you want to get your deep to non-deep work ratio probably a lot higher than it is right now. Great. And then how would one even know, because I can imagine, you know, this is sounds great in theory, but when actually putting it into practice, like where does one even start with determining, you know, what work is valuable and what work is not? I think a lot of people might be confused or consider um, in, in their mind that the, of the work that they are doing is, quote, deep work, but it's not. And, and, and so how, where, where does those definitions lie between the two? Uh, you know, a couple of key heuristics that help you assess if a, a particular pursuit is deep or not. Um, one, it needs to be cognitively demanding. So it has to feel like you're really giving it your full attention and, and your full skill being applied to it. So it's something that's really you're pushing your brain to its limit to try to do. So you're trying to create something, for example, at the limit of your current abilities. Second, a useful heuristic is to step back and ask, if I hired a bright like 21-year-old right out of college, how long would it take me you know, to train him or her to do what I'm doing right now? And if the answer is yeah, a week or so, that means what you're doing is probably not deep work. Oh, it's like something that. that's not, uh, it's not, you're not applying a hard-won skill to produce things of great value. You're doing something that's easily replicatable. And sort of the backdrop for thinking about this is this notion that in general, the market is pretty clear. It values things that are rare and valuable. Right. Mm -hmm. So the, the more rare something is you're doing, the more value to value it. So this is why things that are easily replicatable, something that you could train a 21-year-old to do in a week, kind of by definition, really aren't going to be creating a, a ton of value for you or your company in the marketplace. So deep work is really, this is what I do best. This is my one thing. It's the thing that remained after I did the essentialism screen. I mean, if you've read right. those other books, <laughs> it's the thing where I'm, this is what I'm building up. This is the skill that I stand by. This is what I'm, my craft and now I'm, my deep work sessions are honing that craft and applying that craft. So for your own deep work sessions, what uh, I guess maybe at the start of this book or when you were writing it, what were those deep work sessions like? And how did you adjust from the kind of work that you were doing before? Like, What was deep work to you at that time? Well, deep work had been something that had always been sort of around in my professional life because I came in one of the few fields out there where people still explicitly talk about it. So I'm a th theoretical computer scientist, which means I essentially prove theorems at a whiteboard for a living. And that's one of the few pursuits where when you're training, people still explicitly talk about the ability to concentrate as a tier one skill. 
And so like, hey, that guy is the impressive guy in the office. Why? Because look at how long he could stare at that whiteboard <laughs> and, and hold the equation in their head. So it was sort of second nature to me. Like, yeah, this is all that matters. Uh, what changed for me when I came time to write this book is that I realized that actually it matters for a lot of other fields as well. So this is something that had always kind of been in my life. So I'll have to say writing the book, I got a lot better at it. Um, but it's something I'd always sort of known about and talked about. But there needs to be a lot more fields other than just weird theoretical computer scientists who, who know about the power of concentration. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think we can all understand, all of us listening, just how powerful it is when you get in. And, you know, other, other ways people describe this is when you're kind of in the zone or in the groove and you just start to see a lot of results from, from the input that you're putting in there uh, or a lot of output from the input that you're putting in, which is, which is great. But the, the hard thing, and you mentioned this in the, in the subtitle, which is, you know, we live in a distracted world. So how, how does one get into deep work with the world being so distracting? How are you setting those boundaries for yourself? It's important, especially to recognize that deep work is a skill and not a habit, which is an important distinction because people often get it wrong. People often think that deep work is a habit like flossing their teeth, something they know how to do. They just need to make more time to do it. But the reality is deep work is actually a skill like playing the guitar. It's something that if you don't practice, you're not going to be very good at. And I think that is a crucial distinction because what happens is if you don't recognize that, you might experiment some with maybe putting aside some time to, to be distraction-free or concentrate. And if you haven't been practicing your ability to concentrate, deepening or sustaining the intensities of concentration that you can achieve, you'll probably find your initial experiences with deep work to be uncomfortable and unsatisfying and not much gets done. Mm -hmm. If you think about deep work as being a habit, you might draw the wrong conclusion that, oh, I'm just not wired for it and give up on it. But if you think about it as a skill, you would say, yeah, well, of course, this wasn't so effective. The first time I tried it, I need to practice, I need to get better, I'm still new to it. And you're, you're much more likely to persist with it. So, I mean, I would start by saying, that's a key mindset shift, that if you want to harness the, the true benefits that can come from the ability to concentrate deeply, there's a process involved, you're going to actually have to work at that just like you would increasing, you know, your muscle size or the time in which you run a mile. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge distinction. So if one were starting from scratch, how would one even begin to practice that? Is that setting aside time, but that kind of gets along more the habit side of things? Like, how, how would you help somebody get started with, you know, little bits of deep work to be able to begin practicing and, and working that muscle? Well, my research seemed to uncover that there's two general categories of training that are both important. So I'll give you one example from each of the categories. Uh, the first category is active training activities. So this is activities that you're trying to actively stretch your ability to concentrate, increase the depth or increase how much you can sustain it. Uh, one example activity under this category would be what I call productive meditation. And this is where you take a professional problem, you hold it in your head, you go for a walk, and then during the walk, you try to keep your attention on that problem just in your head and make progress on it. Just like in mindfulness meditation, if you notice that your attention is starting to wander, you know, yeah, what's the, the traffic email, in your spin, head, the traffic, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, just notice it, you know, don't judge it, just notice it, bring it back to the problem. It wanders again, just notice it, bring it back to the problem, keep trying to go deeper. This turns out to be like pull-ups for your brain. If you do this every day for four or five weeks, you'll be amazed by how much better you're able to drown out the traffic and to keep your attention focused on one thing. So that's the sort of an example of active. The other category of activities that help you get better at deep work, I call passive training activities. And this is more about your cognitive fitness. So just like if you wanted to become a professional athlete, you would also work on your general health, how you ate, how you slept. Uh, you would probably not smoke. 
the same thing is relevant when it comes to uh, setting the lifestyle to be able to concentrate deeply. And one of the most important activities you can do here is help break your brain's addiction to novel stimuli. To try to to break this connection you have that at the slightest hint of boredom, you pull out a phone or you pull out a computer screen to quickly assuage that boredom. You need to break that addiction in your everyday life in work and outside of work if your brain is later going to be healthy enough to tolerate intense concentration. So does that depend on the kind of work you're doing, how you would stop yourself from, from getting distracted? Or, you know, I, I, I noticed that when I wrote my first book, for example, that whenever I'd come to a hard part or a part that would require a ton of research or I just didn't know how to figure out at that time, I would always open up Facebook. Like that was my, that was my sort of comfort blanket, if you will. Um, and so I found that when I wrote offline, that that was actually the way to stop myself from actually getting distracted in that in that way. So uh, is it is it about setting up these sort of self checks with yourself and these devices to or, or or even making sure that you're not in an environment where you can get distracted that that helps you in sort of that passive way? Right. Well, there, there's sort of the idea and the implementation. So, you know, one idea that if implemented successfully tends to work well is this notion that you start scheduling mm-hmm. when you're going to use sort of distracting services or sources of stimuli. So uh, when's the next time I'm going to look at Facebook or email or the internet? Uh, and until you get to that time, you just have to white knuckle it. You say, well, look, it, I wrote it down right there, right? It's in, in one hour, I get to go on Facebook again. I think I can last an hour, right? You have a, a set thing. And you hold this at, at evening as well. So instead of it just being the default when you're home after work, that at the slightest hint of boredom, you pull out a thing, you say, okay, I'm going to put aside some time after dinner to catch up on you know the MLB trade rumors or what's going on mm-hmm. on Twitter or something like this. You've set aside the time. The reason scheduling your distraction helps is because all of the time outside of those scheduled distractions, your brain is still going to crave the quick hit. But what you're doing now is you're resisting it by saying, yeah, 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 I'll give you that hit, but not for 20 more minutes when I've scheduled the time. That's 20 minutes of your brain practicing being exposed to the desire for stimuli and not giving in. And, and it's that re- rejection or resistance that over time helps break the Pavlovian cycle so that your brain becomes comfortable with sometimes I'm bored and I don't get the distraction right away and that's okay. And, you know, hey, if you have a job that requires you, you go on those things a lot, then your schedule may never have more than 15 minutes without it. That's fine. Still, every time you have 15 minutes before you log on, that's still 15 minutes of training. So mm. that's one simple way just to help your brain break such a strong connection between as soon as I feel the boredom, I get the stimuli. I love that because it's a, it's, it's a way to reward yourself for the, the work that you do. Um, it's sort of like the, the cheat days in, in working out with physical fitness. You're still going to be able to have that cupcake, right? But it's not until Saturday that you get to do it. And thus, you will work harder during the week. And, and I found that to be really helpful. And actually, it was deep work that, that made me start to schedule when I'm on Twitter, when I'm on Facebook. And it's actually made a huge difference. So that's, a, that's an amazing, actionable tip and one that will help uh, everybody get more productive, I feel. How do, how do you stay productive with two kids? Ah, well, uh, I'm very organized about my time is one big part of it. So I'm, I'm a big believer in intentionality and scheduling. So I have usually a rough plan for the next month or two months, which is kind of week by week what's going on. And then when I get to a week, mm-hmm. I sketch out a plan for each day. Okay, so on this day, I'm tackling this and on here, I'm doing this and here's my meeting. And then when I get to each day, I make a plan for the day. Like, okay, here's the time I have free, the time when there's childcare, the time when, when I don't have family responsibilities. And so I'm always kind of moving the chess pieces mm-hmm. of my available time and resources around the board 
to try to get the best possible configuration. And, and you know, that's something I've been a big advocate of is that people should actually schedule more and spend more time thinking about their schedule because the return you can get on productivity can be much higher than the time and flexibility lost to actually working on the schedules themselves. Does that mean that you go as far as like scheduling when you would be actually um, playing with your kids? And I think that makes sense to a point, but then I'm, I'm imagining my kids at an older age saying to themselves, oh, I, well, I can't play with daddy until, you know, noon because that's that's his time. Like, and, and, and I work from home too, so it's probably a little bit different, but I'm just trying to consider, you know, how to communicate this scheduling to the other people around you who may not quite understand. Right. So in my case, for example, I have a work day. There's sort of a, a set hours where uh, I'm working and, and most of the time I'm actually going to be at my office mm. during those hours. Mm -hmm. So when I'm doing this type of scheduling, it's, it's to make sure that I get the most out of those workday hours. And actually, the, the people around me like it because it means when I'm done, I'm done. Right, um, right. I go, I work, I squeeze every ounce out of the, the time I have at the office or the time I have with this child care. And then when it's done, I can be done with confidence. You know, like, okay, I, I know my what I'm doing. I have my plan. I don't need to get back on email. I don't need to c come back for, for a second shift. So, no, I certainly want to schedule my leisure time. But I'm a big believer, if possible, in saying, here's when I work and here's when I'm not working. And when I'm working, let me schedule that to the hilt and squeeze every ounce out of it. And when I'm done, let me just be 100% done. Yeah, and 100% present with your kids, which is obviously really important. I agree. And, and that's still hard to do. It's, I mean, when you come home from work, I mean, are you still are you really able to, to, to create that boundary in your head to stop thinking about it? Or are there moments when you, even when you're at home and even sometimes, and I admit to this, sometimes even when I'm playing with the kids as much as I try not to, I'm still thinking about that, you know, project I have to finish tomorrow or that, that email that came in and, you know, how, do, do you experience those things too? You know, I used to experience them a lot more. And that's when I came up with this, the strategy I call the work shutdown routine, which was designed directly to address this issue mm. and it, it's a pretty simple idea basically at the end of my work day the final thing i do is this shutdown checklist which for me is first of all i look at my email inboxes and so i'm i'm convincing myself there's nothing in there that's urgent or there's going to be a problem if i don't answer that night uh, i look at my calendar I just make sure right, i'm not forgetting some urgent appointment or something like that mm -hmm. uh, i'll typically look over my task list so i can convince myself look i i I'm not missing some tasking to get done. And then I review my plan. What am I doing tomorrow? What am I doing this week? And I convince myself, you're fine. You have a good plan. You're on top of everything. So there's no possible open loop in my head at this point. And then at that point, I actually have a phrase. And I got to tell you, people make fun of me mercilessly for this. But actually, a lot of people have adopted this phrase. Uh, I say, schedule shutdown complete. I remember reading that in the book. It's and, so good. <laughs> and that phrase is now connected to the fact that I did those five things. And so my brain has learned, I would not have said that phrase if I hadn't checked my email inbox, my task list, my calendar, and my plan for the week and was satisfied that I'm on track for what I need to do and I can shut down for the night. So then as the night goes on, if things pop up in your head, instead of having to go back through the whole mental explanation for why, okay, that's okay, here's how I'm going to handle that, you can just say, I said shut down complete. And I wouldn't have said that if I hadn't checked everything and said it was okay. And you know, what I found is, and a lot of people have the same experience, the first month you use this activity, you'll find yourself a lot in the evening saying, I said shut down complete. It's okay. I said shut down complete. It's okay. It's almost like you're trying to push back the flood tides, but you, you have a very specific weapon to do it with. After about a month, the thoughts don't pop up as much and your mind just learns to trust it and you get a lot more clarity and presence at home. 
That's awesome. I love that. I probably would add a little sound effect like or something. I don't know. Uh, and, so the last thing I want to talk about is your TEDx talk uh, at Tyson's, which was titled Quit Social Media. I read that and I was like, whoa. And I, and I watched it. I would love for you to explain kind of what you mean behind that. Do you literally mean everybody in the world should just stop being on social media? We are wasting our time there. Or what is your thesis there, actually? Yeah, I, I shorted Facebook stock and now I'm trying to manipulate the market. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the, the actual the actual thesis is uh, I, I think in our culture, we have been overemphasizing some of the benefits of social media. And also, I think we've been underemphasizing some of the costs mm -hmm. and that it's important for people to step back and give an honest balancing of the cost and benefits of social media in their life. And my thesis is if, if everyone did this, you certainly wouldn't have social media go away because there's a lot of people like your audience who might be running a business, for example, where social media is the primary way they market. Mm -hmm. But I also think there'd be many millions of people who are using the services mainly because they felt somewhat obligated and are finding the impact of distraction in their life to be a big negative force. And if they did an honest rebalancing, they say, hey, I don't have to use these. So in my perfect world, social media would be like any other tool, something that some people use because they get these sort of specific clear benefits out and something that a lot of other people don't use, as opposed to what it's become now, which is some sort of cultural obligation that, that you're not really allowed to question it. You know, you, you just have to use it regardless of whether or not it's all that useful to your life or not. Yeah, I mean, I really like the thesis. Uh, yeah, I'm imagining, you know, the ripple effect of something like this. For example, if person A um, didn't go on social media and just start a rant because they just could, then person B who would uh, see that rant would become more productive because they wouldn't waste their time thinking about this rant and maybe, you know, spending an hour trying to defend the other side of it, you know. So there's a lot of implications here, which is cool. So, you know, it's not necessarily quit social media, but I think, like you said, being conscious of why you're doing it and what is it for um, and then also, like you were saying earlier, like scheduling it in uh, can can really be the the right solution. Yeah, I think especially if social media has a clear professional use, so it's like how you market your product or services as a company, uh, it's useful, I think, to treat it like a professional tool. So, okay, one of the things I schedule is I put aside time for, for working with social media and you kind of keep a firewall mm -hmm. so that you don't let, for example, a useful professional use of social media allow it to become something that's just on your phone and in your life a lot. And so a, a tip I've heard a lot of people do who use social media professionally for their business enjoy is this idea that they took it off their phone. Yeah. And so the idea was like, yeah, this is important for my business and it's something I schedule to do just like a lot of other things are important to my business, but it's not something that can be a source of distraction when I'm bored in line or when I'm, you know, on a walk trying to think about something so I can minimize the, the, the negative cognitive impact. So I, I should clarify, though, Pat, that I um, I also think there are a lot of people out there like me who, who don't need to use it at all. Now, it's certainly not everyone, but I, I think there should be more people who say, you know, for what I do, I worry about having this thing around. They're in, it's engineered to be addictive. I worry about uh, it, it claiming my, my attention. And in my particular field, it's not so important. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to put it aside as a way of sort of telling myself I take my attention seriously and maybe just put my head down and work on honing or applying my craft. So I think we need much more wider variety of and answers. You know, not everyone uses it, and then the people who use it have a lot more wide variety in how they use it. Love it. It's funny, I'll be honest with you. I uh, had tweeted at you a couple times, because you did have an account where you do have one, you just aren't on it. And well, it's a 
it's a fake account out there. Someone started. My oh, name. is it? Oh, great. Well, yeah, there's like a Cal Newport account that I don't know who started it. But oh, it well, they got the thank you from me. Um, but uh, I'm I'm thankful now that I'm here with you live uh, recording this and being able to thank you in person for uh, all the inspiration, all the hard work uh, that you put into the work that you do, and also obviously for your time today. Uh, being here and uh, supporting everybody's work here on the show, so I want to thank you so much. And Cal, if you have a place, uh, Cal, if you have a place you'd like people to go to learn more about you and see your work and and what you're up to, where should they go? Uh, website calnewport.com, and and I blog on there. So if you're interested in just being exposed to some of these ideas, you can find them on the blog, and, and my books are available or anywhere books are sold. And you know, thanks, Pat. I really enjoyed this opportunity to come on and talk to you and your audience. Yeah, thank you so much. I look forward to the next book and the next part of your life that you'll be sharing all these amazing tips about. So uh, until then, take care and thanks again. Thanks. All right, wasn't that fantastic? Cal was amazing. And again, uh, Cal, thank you so much for listening to this. And those of you who are on the other end listening, I hope you got some great advice that you can now put into practice to make March and all the months moving forward after this episode a lot more productive for you. Uh, We have another great productivity-driven podcast episode coming next week with even more actionable advice, different kinds of frameworks you can use uh, throughout the week to get even more done. Uh, But before that, I do want to just say, hey, if you want to get the show notes for this episode, you can head on over to smartpassiveincome.com slash session 255. And uh, Cal Newport, you can find, like you said, all of his stuff at calnewport.com, his recent blog articles, and obviously his books there too. Uh, So check that out for sure. And we mentioned the book club on the podcast too. So if you want to check out the book club, head on over to patsbookclub.com. It's completely free. We do a lot of giveaways and stuff there too uh, for those authors who offer up some free books. And sometimes they're signed and we just give them away to random subscribers, which is really cool. I hope you've been enjoying the free podcast content here. I'm really excited because it's one of my favorite things to do. And I know a lot of you have already taken action from the content that you've listened to on the podcast. And if that's you, congratulations. Just keep going, please. It's one of my favorite things to see. But I also know a lot of you and a lot of you have been telling me that you've been wanting more. You've been wanting additional information, some accountability, some hand-holding along the way. And so depending on what it is that you're looking for, what I would recommend is actually go to smartpassiveincome.com slash courses. You'll see the courses that I'm offering there that are paid courses, but they're there to help walk you through certain processes. Depending on what problem you have or what issue or what thing you're trying to solve, go there, check it out. You can see if there's a course available for you and where you're at in your business right now, whether you're just getting started and you just want to make sure you have all the right things in place before you actually devote a lot of time and effort into something. There's a course for you there. For those of you looking to get started with a podcast, there's stuff for you there. And there's going to be more courses there in the future. And how do I come up with those ideas for the courses? They come directly from you. So thank you for all telling me how I can help you better. And if you have ideas for more courses that I can create for you, just hit me up on Twitter, at Pat Flynn, let me know, or uh, use my contact page on smartpassiveincome.com. But again, check out and see what's available, smartpassiveincome.com slash courses. That will be continually added to over time, so check it out. Thanks so much. And lastly, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, if you would like to check out smartfromscratch.com. You can check it out from there. Uh, if you've read Will It Fly, it's it's essentially the same material, except I go a lot deeper into the work that you need to do. You also get access to a community together that is going through this process, and I sort of hold your hand and hold you accountable through it. So check it out, smartfromscratch.com. Thank you so much. I appreciate you, and I look forward to serving you in next week's episode of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Until then, get some deep work done, guys, because that's how we make things happen. Cheers, take care. See you next week. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at www.smartpassiveincome.com. So podcasting is obviously a big deal here at SPI. And today, I'm so excited to tell you about our newest podcast. Yes, a brand new podcast called Flops. Flops is all about exploring, celebrating, and normalizing failure in the entrepreneurial journey. Every entrepreneur experiences failure at some point, so I love that we're just facing it head on here. And the show is hosted by two members of the team, Karen and Ray, and in it, they talk to entrepreneurs who have had stumbles, setbacks, and flat-out failures. These guests are honest and generous with their stories, and I think they offer hope and encouragement for all other entrepreneurs out there, because we all experience it, right? We all experience failure. For example, in the first episode, Ray talks to John who got caught up in a Ponzi scheme. It's a story with twists and turns that will keep you hooked. It's a great story. I highly recommend you check it out. But one thing I love about Flops is that it doesn't dwell on the failure and it always finds a bright side. I really love it and I think you will too. So the first season of Flops has already started with new episodes dropping on Wednesdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. I hope you enjoy it.